Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, where we'll be at today. And FYI, we have about three more sermons in the series in Galatians, but next week we will transition to our regularly scheduled summer series, Summer in the Psalms, uh, starting next Sunday and through the months of June, July, and August in order to be on track with our 15-year intermittent series through the Psalms. And we'll begin with uh, Psalm 21 next Sunday uh, in the third year of our series. And as for the remaining passages in Galatians, we'll be weaving them in in the upcoming weeks. So today, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 15. What is true freedom? What is true freedom? In our day, our society and culture tells us we can be free when we rid ourselves of the restrictions of the law or commitments and boundaries. Essentially, anything that makes us feel trapped is an enemy of freedom, isn't it? If you're unhappy in your job, the world tells you, find a new one. If you don't like your church, leave. If you are dissatisfied in your marriage, divorce. If you don't want to be a mom, get an abortion. Freedom, in the worldly sense, also entitles us to the power or the right to act, to speak, and to think as we want. The mantras of this generation are, you be you, or my choice, my rights, or don't tell me how to live my life. People are encouraged to be free, to choose their own gender and sexuality, to have freedom in having multiple partners, to have the freedom to choose whether an unborn baby should live or die. As you know, the whole entire month of June has been declared in the United States as National Pride Month, celebrating equality, freedom, and love. But the equality, freedom, and love that the culture and society champions today is entirely polar opposite to the freedom that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches freedom is not doing whatever you want to do or being whoever you want to be. The Bible actually teaches us such living is bondage. A person may be free to smoke, or drink as much alcohol as they want to. A person may be free to watch whatever they want to. A person may be free to sleep with whoever they want to. A person may be free to look at their phones whenever, however long they want to. But pretty soon, those things can become ruthless masters. And oftentimes, so many become enslaved to those very things that they pursued for freedom's sake, doesn't it? But freedom that the Scripture speaks of is true freedom. As John 8 verse 36 says, So if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Scripture is teaching us true freedom is only possible in Christ Jesus our Lord, the one who has conquered sin, Satan, and death once and for all. That true freedom doesn't come from serving yourselves or your own desires, but in being saved and submitting to and serving the Savior Jesus Christ. For freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The letter to the Galatians is known as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. And as is the case, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the verse that I just read, can be considered one of the key verses of the epistle. As Paul presents a deeply impassioned, loving corrective to the Galatian brothers and sisters of the faith to not stray from the gospel in gospel plus legalism, but to stay the course 
in God's divine and glorious gospel of grace. We're continuing our study through Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel. And in our passage this afternoon, Paul, having just clarified a Christ-centric interpretation of Hagar and Sarah's story as allegory, Paul exhorts the Galatians to stand firm in the freedom Christ has won for them and not to submit themselves again to the yoke of slavery. And in our passage, Paul continues the exhortation he began in chapter 4, verse 12, in the third main section of the letter, the life of the gospel. And Paul addresses for the first time the issue of circumcision head-on and confronts the young Galatian Christians who are at the brink of apostasy, of abandoning their faith, the consequences of what will befall on them should they continue to listen to the Judaizers' false teaching and subject themselves back under the law. So from our passage, I want to share with you three choices Paul challenges the Galatians to make. And in a similar sense, choices we ought to make regarding our faith in order to stand firm in the gospel of grace. Three choices Christians ought to make in order to stand firm in the gospel of grace. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. Point number one, circumcision or Christ from verses one through six. Circumcision or Christ. Point number two, judgment or justification. Judgment or justification from verses 7 through 12. And point number three, flesh or freedom. Flesh or freedom from verses 13 through 15. Dear beloved church family, I pray through this message you will be reminded again that there is no such thing as middle ground salvation. Lukewarm Christianity, nominal Christianity, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, Christianity is not Christianity. You are either fully and thoroughly a son or a daughter of God or not. As the late Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you are either a Christian or you are not. You cannot be partly a Christian. You are either dead or alive. You are either born or not born. So the question for us this afternoon is, who are you? What are you? What will you choose in order to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has won for you? Hence, I pray this message will encourage you anew, if you are a believer, of the immeasurable blessing and joy of salvation that is offered to you in Christ. Amen? Guests and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, we sincerely welcome you. You could have been anywhere on this Sunday afternoon, but you are here for whatever reason. We believe that God led you here. We've been praying for you in order that you may hear his word this afternoon. We prayed for you, that he would grant you repentance and faith to trust in him today. We pray that you will see Jesus Christ, the merciful and gracious Savior, as he truly is. So without further ado, please turn to our passage, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, found on page 974 and 975 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, let me encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and reference it often for the entire duration of the reading and preaching, so that you know that this word is from God's word to you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, says this. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you will call to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. In the previous passage, Paul had presented a biblical and theological case of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by showing that the law was merely our guardian, our disciplinarian, until Christ came. Paul explained how true children of Sarah are those of promise and not of the elementary principles of the world. That no amount of good works will win you salvation, that the gospel in itself is sufficient, that you can't add anything to the gospel for you to merit additional favor or love from God. That it was God's salvation plan from the very beginning, not only for the Jews, but for both Jews and Gentiles made one in Christ by faith, by Christ's substitute gift righteousness. Galatians chapter 5, 1 serves as the transitional verse between the previous passage and our passage today. And hence Paul continues to exhort the Galatians to stand fast in Christ's freedom. Freedom will be their portion and reward only if they refuse to submit to the demands of the Judaizers who insisted on circumcision for salvation. And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, Paul had recounted the desires of false brothers who imposed circumcision on Titus in Jerusalem, and Paul had referred to them as the circumcision party in chapter 2, verse 12, didn't he? But Paul held off against mentioning the issue of circumcision directly in Galatia until here in our passage. It's as if Paul was loading up a slingshot in order to pack the most effective and efficient punch and you'll see the slingshots coming in this passage. Hence, as the main issue of the Galatian dilemma was their near submission to it, submission to circumcision, and so Paul exhorts and challenges them to choose. Point number one, either circumcision or Christ. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, having defended the legitimacy of his apostleship in chapter 2, commissioned by the risen Christ himself and affirmed by fellow apostles, in verse 2, the phrase, Look, or behold, I, Paul, say to you, Paul is meaning to underscore his own apostolic authority and emphasize that the words which will follow are of immense weight as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the very words of God himself. 
You see, Paul understood their final destiny was at stake. And Paul could not be any more explicit as in verses 2 through 4. Repeatedly, Paul threatens, in the best sense possible, the Galatians of their consequences that will certainly follow if they accept, if they choose circumcision over Christ. You see the repetition there in verses 2 and 3 for emphasis, don't you? Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. By the phrase of no advantage or no profit to you, Paul is referring to final judgment. Circumcision may have been indeed the covenant sign of God's people, Israel, under the old covenant of works, but under the new covenant of grace initiated and ratified by Jesus the Christ, circumcision, Paul was saying, has no advantage, no profit, no purpose in salvation whatsoever. And Paul says, I testify again, repeating what he said back in Galatians 3.10, to undergo circumcision is to subject oneself under the entire law that no person in human history can ever keep in its entirety ever. Paul was saying to flirt with circumcision is to put oneself under a curse. For as Galatians 3.10 cites Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do not do them. You see, Paul had explained in Galatians 3.13 that only Christ, only Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In Christ only are we freed from the curse. In Christ only are we freed from the burden of the law. In Christ only do we have the advantage of being counted righteous as His free sons and daughters. In Christ only God's covenant promises are fulfilled. Hence verse 4. If you accept circumcision, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away literally from grace. The grammatical tense of the words severed and have fallen are in the gnomic sense. Paul is not declaring here that the Galatians have definitively fallen from grace. Otherwise, the exhortation in verse 2, if you accept circumcision, would be meaningless. Paul is intending and prayerfully and passionately exhorting the Galatians who are at the cusp of apostasy, that they would hear the words of God, that they would listen to the words of God and repent. Paul was saying, you can have one, but you can't have both. Paul was saying, you can't have circumcision as an add-on to the gospel and still have Christ. Paul was saying, you can't have circumcision as some badge of societal and cultural approval and still have Christ. Paul was saying, if you want to be justified by the law, you have no grace. You have fallen from grace. You nullify Christ's grace. It's circumcision or Christ. It's one or the other. In so many words, Paul makes the point, choose circumcision or choose Christ. And Paul was asking and challenging the Galatians, and he's challenging you and I this afternoon. In actuality, will you choose superficial, face-saving, outward religion? Or will you choose true, inward religion of the heart? That's what he was asking. Circumcision or Christ? Brothers and sisters, I pray you see the clear lesson here, drawn out for us by Paul through these words. Circumcision, you see, is not mere circumcision. Circumcision meant rebellion against God's command. 
Circumcision meant rejection of God's covenant promises. Circumcision meant subjection to the law. Circumcision meant slavery. In a similar sense, there are so many today, aren't there, that continues to adhere to the voices of the modern Judaizers today who seek to add to the gospel, who demand that the gospel alone is not sufficient to save. In our day, the subjection to circumcision may not be as explicit, but it's played out in countless ways in so-called Christianity, Bible-believing Christians, gospel plus social and racial justice, gospel plus gifts of the Holy Spirit, gospel plus legalism, behavior modification, gospel plus LGBTQIA, gospel plus political conservatism or liberalism. The list is endless of how Christians attempt to add to the sufficient and glorious gospel of Christ. They can call it whatever they want. But over 2,000 years into church history, can't rid of legalism, the subtle but certain enemy that lurks in the shadowy corners of nearly every Christian community. What a piercing warning, brothers and sisters, Paul gives to the Galatians and to us today. That there is no such thing as pleading ignorance in matters of salvation. I didn't know attending a theologically liberal church is sinful. I didn't know the difference between Catholicism and Christianity was all that significant. I didn't know attending gay weddings was affirming it as true marriage against biblical convictions. I didn't know using pronouns in the workplace was subtly affirming the transgender agenda. I didn't know that biblical inerrancy was that big of a deal. I didn't know that not hearing the gospel in a sermon every Sunday is all that important. I didn't know that their strange way of emphasizing spiritual gifts, holy laughter, slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, and corporate gatherings out of order was all that serious. They seemed to love Jesus. I didn't know. I didn't know not committing to a local church is unbiblical. I didn't know. There's so many more ways people excuse and ignore or undermine the true and biblical and sufficient gospel of grace for salvation, isn't there? What are some of the excuses that you have given in the past? about your ignorance to the true gospel. But Paul says it so clearly, doesn't he? You are severed from Christ. You are cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Contrary to what the Judaizers claim, it is you. It is you who have no part with Christ. Christ has no part with you. You are not of Christ if you accept anything that adds to the gospel. Perhaps you're asking yourself, why must salvation in Jesus be so narrow, so exclusive? Why can't there be so many paths to God, to heaven, to eternal life? Well, because there is only one key to your house, isn't there? There's only one key. Why? Because your home is a safe place. It's a secured place. It is a sacred place. If everyone had access to your home, However and whenever they pleased, they, they wanted to come in, your home would no longer be a place of safety and security and sacredness. And such is the way with our soul's salvation. Matthew seven thirteen and 14 says, For the gate is wide and is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The way of salvation to heaven, to eternal life, to God is narrow and hard and few find it. Why? Because it's safe, because it's secure, because it's sacred. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other Savior. Do you know of any other Savior that came for you, that died for you, and rose again for you, and no one will come again? There is no one else who came but Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. Jesus only and no other way at all. Paul says in verse 5, look at that verse. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, brothers and sisters, waiting has a way of strengthening our faith, doesn't it? True sons and daughters of God eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Believers, yes, are already righteous before God by the virtue of our union with Christ. Yet in the now, in the present, our righteousness is hidden from the world and will be only unveiled fully on the last day. Hence in verse 5, Paul is talking about the eschatological hope of believers in the final declaration of righteousness when Jesus returns, when our faith will turn to sight. And then no one will doubt and all will see our righteous standing with God and before all who love and fear His name. That is the hope that we have in our waiting. You see the massive difference, don't you? Those who do not have assurance of the gospel are continuing to work to merit salvation, to maintain a right standing with God. They don't await eagerly with hope. They struggle in anxious toiling to find acceptance and peace and life without any avail, without any true and lasting certainty or joy. They have no Holy Spirit to be their counselor, to be the comforter, to be their very present help in time of need. No grace of Christ to cover them and to carry them when they fail and fall. In verse 6, Paul drives his point home. Is it Christ or circumcision? And he does it by pointing out for anyone who may have prided themselves in their uncircumcision. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means nothing, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Paul is saying what matters is your faith living and active. That's what Paul is asking. Does your faith live and is it active or is it merely head knowledge? Paul is saying you can't be a Christian and merely be theological and not be doxological or ecclesiological. You can't be a believer of Christ and not be a worshiper of Christ in the way that you love and serve others. You'll see that Paul bookends his argument at the end of this passage in verse 14. In other words, if you really understand you are justified by faith in Christ, your faith will show itself in love. Paul was restating his earlier teaching from Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20, that gospel-centered proclaiming goes hand in hand with gospel-rooted living. Simply, if faith is the root, love is the fruit. If faith is the root, love is the fruit. As I said, Paul is going to address this more down in our passage and also in the following chapters. In fact, our next sermon in this series is titled, The Gospel That Bears Fruit. If you truly know the gospel, how does it bear fruit in your life and around the lives of others around you? But for now, some more application before we move on to the next point. If you have truly chosen Christ over works, over circumcision, what is the fruit of your faith? Is love working in your life in the way that you eagerly wait with hope of righteousness in your singleness? 
through a difficult season of marriage, through a hard season of parenting, through a trying season of infertility, through a weary season of caring for loved ones who are sick? How does love express itself in your life in the way that you hope with righteousness? Is love working in your life in the way you rest in the grace of Christ when suffering and trials and temptation surround you and overwhelm you in life? In patience, in repentance, in clinging to Christ in faith, in fighting for joy, for holiness, in your scripture reading, in prayer, how is faith working through love in your life? Examine yourself today through this word. How can you ask God's Spirit to help you grow in it more in waiting with hope of righteousness? What evidence do you show that you are choosing Christ over all? Christ over everything. In verses 7 through 12, Paul offers the second challenge, point number two, choose judgment or justification from verses 7 through 12. Look at verse 7 again. It says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Through these verses, Paul is reminding the Galatians that the race of faith is a marathon and not a sprint. The race of faith is a marathon and not a sprint. As I was meditating on these verses, it reminded me of the time when I was in eighth grade, my athletic prime, when I was thrown into a track meet to run the 400-meter hurdles. You should have seen me when I was in eighth grade. I was pretty fast. You see, whether you believe it or not, I was pretty good at the 100-meter hurdles. But for this meet, for whatever reason, the coaches threw me into the 400-meter hurdles. And I realized very quickly that those two races are entirely different. In the 100-meter hurdles, you give it all you got, and you sprint the whole way. Well, guess what I did in the first 100 meters of the 400-meter race? I gave it all I got, and by the second 100 meters, I was completely out of gas. It was as if my oxygen supply was completely cut off. I couldn't breathe. <gasps> I couldn't move. My body literally froze as if I hit a wall. Long story short, I ended up crawling to the finish line, I kid you not, and finished last. And not just last, but like way far behind. It was very embarrassing. The coach never put me in again in that event. That was the end of my athletic career forever. <laughs> forever, literally, that was done. You see, I had forgotten my basics, my fundamentals. I forgot to breathe, forgot to pump my arms, forgot to run. Paul says to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, the Galatians had forgotten their fundamentals. They had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten the basic truth. The word hindered means literally, who has cut you off? Of course, the Judaizers and their false teaching of legalism and works. The fight of faith against false teaching is further truth. More truth is needed. And Paul begins to drop some truth bombs in hopes that the Galatians will return again to running in the truth. Look at verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, this verse is not Paul merely addressing the source of the false information. Paul is rather passing judgment on those who hindered the Galatians as they were running the race well. How should these infiltrators be assessed? They are to be categorically rejected. They are not from God. They are not of God. You see, verse 9 describes the false teaching of the Judaizers this way. 
a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What Paul was saying was, they are poison that ruins the entire well. They are the mold that sours the whole loaf. They are the cancer that threatens the whole body. And what you need to do is to reject them. Have nothing to do with them in the church. You need to cut them off. Paul further declares the truth regarding this whole matter. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, they will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul reminds the Galatians of God's sovereignty in salvation. The truth of Philippians 1.9. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those whom God saves, God will persevere to the end. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. Our work is to declare and proclaim that truth. This is big God theology. This is reformed theology. This is biblical theology. This is Romans 8, 32 through 34, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, who is praying and working for us even still. Hallelujah. On the other hand, Paul is also clear about the fate of the Judaizers, isn't he? The second part of verse 10. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Just as Paul is certain that the chosen of God will persevere in salvation to the end, he is sure of the judgment that is to come for those who reject the gospel of grace. I love the emphasis of the final phrase of that verse, whoever he is. Paul is not saying that in some careless, nonchalant way, whatever or whoever he is, they're going to get it. No, that's not what Paul means at all. He's saying it doesn't matter who that person is in his accolades, in his merits, in his religious zeal, in his theological knowledge. It doesn't matter if that person is a member or a pastor or young or old. The one who is a stumbling block to the faith will incur the penalty the one who rejects the gospel of grace and does not repent of their sin and confess of their need for Christ will face judgment. Paul is very clear, isn't he? And Paul repeats again as he addressed it in the previous passage about the Hagar and Sarah allegory in Galatians 4.29. Just as the one born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul says, one of the signs you are running well is persecution. One of the signs that you are running well, fighting the good fight well, is persecution. You see, the sly and crafty Judaizers had accused Paul of hypocrisy. They were saying he was requiring circumcision for some, as Paul had Timothy circumcised in Acts 16.3. And Paul responds in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the gospel has been removed. What is he saying? Paul was pointing out that the reason why he was getting persecuted was because of the true gospel that he was preaching and living out. Because the mark of that promise, the true gospel promise, was on him. In other words, if Paul proclaimed the necessity of circumcision, he would have certainly avoided persecution, for then the scandal of the cross would have been eliminated. 
You see, the cross rejects any and all human attempt to be right with God. Righteousness is found only in what Christ has done for sinners. The message of the cross is a scandal or a stumbling block. It is offensive to the natural human mind, an affront to human pride, because human strength is powerless to achieve it. And Paul is saying, if I am of them, if I am like them, I would have no persecution. But the evidence of my true faith is persecution that I am facing. And so in a play of words, to those who are cutting off Galatians who are running well, to those who are rejecting the scandal of the cross, Paul says in no subtle tone, in no subtle way, his desire for judgment of those who scandalize the gospel of grace, look at verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now these are harsh words, I get it. But if you listen to the entire thrust of the passage, Paul has been hinting at how those Judaizers were trying to cut off God's people from their rightful salvation. And we have to understand that this is not the first time the Bible has addressed those who cut themselves and mutilate the flesh. They are those, again, who are not of God. They were part of those who are involved in pagan worship and not the worship of Yahweh. You can refer to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. And Philippians 3.2, let me just read for you Philippians 3.2, which says this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. If by the new covenant, the old covenant stipulations, circumcision specifically, for ethnic Israel has been nullified and fulfilled by Christ, rejection from God by his death, those who are requiring circumcision for salvation, according to Paul, what does he say? He's saying there are dogs. He's saying there are evildoers, those who by their own wills cut themselves off from God and His people, those who would receive God's judgment. That's what he was saying by saying, those who hinder you, those who are cutting you off from the faith, I desire for them to be cut off from the faith entirely by God's judgment. Paul challenges the Galatians, what will it be? What will you choose? Justification by Christ or judgment by circumcision. And brothers and sisters, the Word of God challenges us the same way today. Will you cling to Christ's justification, or will you unsuccessfully attempt to merit your own salvation by your own works, by adding to the gospel onto certain, sure judgment? How can you rest in the justification of Christ? How can you know that you are doing so, resting in the justification of Christ? And that moves us to our final point. You can rest in Christ's justification as you examine your faith in how you live out your faith. Point number three, whether you live the gospel out in the flesh or in the freedom. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, in a day in our society, all throughout the nation and all around the globe and even in our intra-globe, the internet, it's characterized by backbiting and devouring of one another, isn't it? Paul's warning that we watch out, that we are not consumed by one another rings so relevant and real, doesn't it? Yet in Christ, brothers and sisters, there is hope. Paul reminds the Galatians and is reminding us today that true freedom is expressed in the way that we serve one another through love. This teaching we know is not new. 
In the Gospels, Jesus had repeatedly taught the symbiotic relationship between loving God and loving one another, particularly those who are in his church. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In Mark 12, verses 30 through 31, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So in verse 14, Paul was just recounting Christ's great commandment. Loving God is loving one another. It is a sure mark of God's children of promise. And why should love for God and love for one another be central to God's people, to God's church? Because the church is the gospel of God made visible. The church is the gospel of God made visible. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ, the best news you will ever hear is this, that God our Father granted grace and peace to us, to sinners, through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself as a substitute sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age that is so divided and devouring one another. How did he do this? By his resurrection to give us a sure hope. The hope of his promised word, the hope of his certain return, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, the hope of God's eternal congregation of all nations, peoples, tribes, and languages that will never break up according to the will of God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. This is the will of God that we may dwell together in unity, in love, in hope. Hallelujah. Friends and visitors, if you are here and you do not know this good news as your own, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you do not own this hope, I want to challenge you, what will it be for you? Works or Christ? Judgment or justification by faith? Life by the flesh or life in freedom? Friends, such sure freedom is offered only in Christ Jesus alone. I want to encourage you to repent of your sins today. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world. Turn from trusting in yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. For you. He died and rose again for you. And trust in Him with your whole life. Trust Him today and tomorrow and the next day. He is able. He is able to carry us to the end. Talk to any of the pastors at the close of service to find out more about how you can follow and trust in Him starting today. And talk to anybody with a smile on their face. We'll be happy to talk to you today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you choose Christ over circumcision as you have been baptized in the membership of this local body? Do you choose justification over judgment to rest in Jesus for all your days? Do you choose freedom over flesh as you eagerly wait with hope for the hope of righteousness? Because brothers and sisters, true freedom calls us, true freedom calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. How might the Lord be calling you today through this word to love your neighbor, starting with fellow members of this church today? How might the Lord be calling you to leverage your freedom to love others as yourself this very week? As you contemplate and examine your heart, let's consider our final song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure. 
And I love the final line. I hope you repeat it a couple times, Nick. It is only in Christ, the fullest expression of God's love, we stand. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that by your grace we can choose Christ over works, over circumcision. Father, only by Christ, the gift of your Son and his substitute life and death and his resurrection, we can have justification rather than judgment. Father, we thank you and praise you that because of Christ, we don't have to live according to the flesh, addicted to sins and held in bondage to sin, but rather in freedom to know you, to love you, and to love others as we love you. Father, what a warning, though harsh it may be. Father, warnings that we need in our hearts, in our minds, because we are so prone to wander from the truths of you. Father, thank you for this reminder. Planted deep within our hearts to rest only on you. And not only to rest in that head knowledge, but to live it out in love, in love of others, other brothers and sisters in particular. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this reminder. It is only in Christ we stand firm in the freedom that you have won for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.